This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. Thursday show, big show tonight. We have a lot coming up down the pipe. You know how many people have been talking about mail-in voting, voter fraud. Well, we will be talking to the man responsible for overseeing the elections here in the state of Alabama. The Secretary of State, John Merrill, is coming up in just a second. But we are going to start, as we always do, with our weekly coronavirus update. We do this every Thursday. Today is no different. So let's go ahead and look at the latest stats from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can see there... The state of Alabama currently has 107,483 confirmed cases, 891,813 tested, 1,905 deaths, and 13,214 hospitalizations. By the way, this actually brings the fatality rate for the disease, you know, people that have have contracted the disease compared to those who have died from it. That brings it down to 1.77%, which, by the way, if the CDC's estimates that about 10 times as many people as we believe have it actually have it, that brings that fatality rate down to about 0.177%. So that's pretty good. I mean, it, it's still... That would mean that it's still 77% more deadly than the seasonal flu. So still not something to sneeze at, but if only 0.177% of people that contract this thing are going to die, that's a really big win compared to where we were back in like February and March, where we were thinking that this thing was going to be at bare minimum 10 times more deadly than the flu, thinking that it would be have a fatality rate somewhere around 1% or maybe even as high as is anywhere from 2 to 5%. Well, it turns out it's way, 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 way less than that by a factor of about 100, uh, 10 at the very least. But it, based on the numbers that we have right now, it is significantly less deadly than originally believed, and the numbers in the state of Alabama are reflecting that. So... Basically, where we've been is we've been roughly stagnant for a month, but we have good news this weekend that our numbers overall are starting to go down a little bit, that they are on a decline. Now, part of the reason that that probably looks slightly better than it actually is is because we did have a recent spike, and anytime you're looking at numbers coming off of a spike, they probably look a little bit better than they usually do because the average that was preceding that was slightly higher. But nonetheless, this is a good week. The numbers do look good for the state of Alabama, and it looks as though Alabama and America as a whole, because I'm also looking at our neighbors, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Mississippi, uh, some of our neighbors that are not directly on our borders, like your South Carolinas, your Kentuckys, your Louisianas. Looking at some of those states, you can see that a lot of them, Louisiana is a bit of an exception because they hit an early spike. But most of the states surrounding us, most of the states sort of here in the southeast, they saw a similar pattern to where they saw a bit of an increase, a, a substantial increase, really, depending on what number you're looking at. Hospitals, that one was inflated, inflated slightly artificially, I guess is the best way to say it, not because there was anything wrong with the stats before or there was anything wrong with the stats after. We just changed what we considered and we changed how we counted them which necessarily means that the stats are going to look different and they're not going to 
reflect reality just because, you know, not to anybody's fault or anything, just that's how it happens when you change your grading system and how you're going to measure something. You, you can't compare the measuring system before to the measuring system after. But nonetheless, let's go ahead and dive into some of the statistics here. These are the new coronavirus cases for the state of Alabama. And you can see here, these are the averages, the seven-day average for this week, the 13th through the 20th. And you can see that we've got 855 per day. Now, that is a lot, of course. I mean, 855 people contracting the same disease in a day, especially a day in August, which, you know, is typically where you don't get things like a novel coronavirus or a flu. That's a big deal. But it's important to note and to point out that considering we were averaging over a thousand cases per day for a significant amount of time, 855 cases per day is actually a really good sign. And this is down from the previous seven-day average of last week, which was 1,156. Again, this is just pointing to what I've been saying for a while, which is having that seven-day average above 1,000 cases per day for a long time. I remember at one point it got up to about 1,400, if I'm not mistaken, maybe even higher. But we are coming down off of this thing and doing so pretty quickly. I mean, it's a seven-day average with a swing, with a decrease in 300, slightly over 300, 301 to be precise, that's a big win. That is a really good thing for the state of Alabama. Now let's go ahead and look at the monthly totals. So this is the 28-day average, so four weeks from July the 23rd to the 20th, of course, that being today. And uh, just keep in mind that the mask mandate started a week before this, time tri this, this trial time started, so it, it started on July the 16th. So since then, we have had new cases of 1,476 per day. Now, if you're looking at the time period directly before the mask mandate began, in other words, the month before the 16th when it was initiated, that would be the June 18th through July 16th. This is before the mask were mandated. You're seeing the average daily cases at 1,156. So that's a, oh, that's actually a typo. Uh, that's an increase of 86, of course, because you'll see that there is, has been an increase since the mask mandate was put into effect, not a decrease. So that is a, a little typo there. Uh, but yeah, 86. 86 per day. So there has actually been a slight increase, but that's looking at it overall. This particular week, because we started coming down off the spikes, have been good. But if you're looking at the month overall, you're looking at the 28-day span since uh, from today, 28 days back, versus the 28 days before the mask mandate, we actually had less new cases when the mask mandate was not in effect. But that's partially because of how bad the spike was, and we're still seeing the effects of that. So uh, that's just something to be aware of, is that we have had really bad spikes here in the past few weeks. And, I mean, obviously our averages were actually higher, even with the mask mandate in, in place, which, again, is a testament to how little the mask mandates actually work, how ineffective they actually are. Uh, in, in fact, we'll just pull that up here real quick. But you can see there, uh, you can see that uh, there, there was actually significantly more with the, um, 
with the mask than without it. So let's go ahead and look at the new hospitalizations for the state of Alabama. Now you'll see there the seven-day average for this week, 132. So the previous seven-day average, again, this is on a downward trend, which is good. All of our numbers are on a downward trend. 140. So, you know, that's a decrease of eight. I don't know why. I, I guess my, uh, my decrease in increases didn't get edited. I apologize for that. So that's just incorrect on the graphic. But that is a decrease, of course, of eight. And so that's a really big deal. Uh, decrease of eight Alabamians getting hospitalized per day. I mean, proportionately, when you're talking about more than 100 people, eight doesn't seem like a big deal. But the fact that we're on the upward slope of this, and, and keep in mind that what you have seen thus far... What you have seen thus far is that these lagging statistics, the hospitalizations and deaths, they follow the trend of the increase in cases. And so what we saw was a little decrease in cases last week and hospitalizations and deaths were actually about stagnant or even up in the case of deaths. Now, this week we saw a significant drop in cases, which will probably lead to, if the pattern holds, and there's no reason to believe that it won't, that we're seeing just the little bit, that, that first little step up the hill, or I guess down the hill in this case, but that first little step down the hill in hospitalizations, if the pattern follows, that means next week we're going to see a substantial decrease in hospitalizations, and the following week after that we'll see a substantial decrease in deaths, which is, of course, the stat that is most important, the one that we should be primarily concerned with. Now you can go ahead and look at the hospitalizations for the uh, for the 14 day, and you'll see a similar pattern here. Again, we can't compare very far back with hospitalizations because the state of Alabama actually changed how we tally those, and so there's not a good comparison there. So you'll see the 14 day average for the 14 day period we're in now 136. The previous 14 day average 166. Again, I don't know why my increases and decreases didn't get updated. I guess that's my fault and oversight, but that's a, a decrease in 30. So a decrease in 30 for the hospitalizations for the state of Alabama. And you can see there that that is, you know, making a, a substantial difference, a decrease in 30 over a 14-day period. Obviously, we'd like it to be bigger, but again, we're, we're still on that little bitty step down. We're probably going to see a much more dramatic shift downward in hospitalizations if the pattern stays true, if we are genuinely seeing that. And, and another thing that is important to note as well, nationwide, and this is an interesting stat that I saw earlier today, nationwide, only somewhere in like the one to two percentile of all emergency room visits are COVID related. So that's a really good sign, too, because that means a couple of things. First of all, what it means is, obviously, the, the virus is not overwhelming our healthcare system, which, of course, was the, the big concern when all of this started. But the second thing that it shows is that people are actually reflecting that, their behavior is reflecting that, in the sense that they're no longer worried to go to get uh, checked out, get screenings, and, and in the ER's case, I mean, the ER is, of course, not for that. But in the ER's case, people are not as hesitant to get hospitalized. You remember that this was a really big problem at one point, especially early on in the pandemic when people were so scared of the virus that they were not going to the emergency room, even though they really needed to, because they were afraid of getting the virus. And this was causing 
uh, injury or, or even death in some cases. And so it seems as though, based on those numbers, that, that stigma has largely evaporated. And that's a very, very good thing. So let's go ahead and look at the, uh, the most important stat for the coronavirus here in the state of Alabama. Let's look at new Alabama deaths. So you'll see there the seven-day average for this week is 12. The seven-day average for the previous week, 23.9. Now, that's a pretty darn huge drop right there. So that's, of course, a very, very big deal. That is a difference of 11.9. So that's almost cutting it in half. It's literally a tenth of a, a, tenth of a case more would have resulted in having the death rate this week. So that's super, super optimistic. That's, that's really good. And what you're seeing there is because, again, this thing travels in two-week waves. The results of those are not because of the, the result of the decrease in cases this week. That's not what's happening there. But it is a good sign because it means that we are getting better at treating this thing and we're improving because if that were not the case, you may recall, we had a bump in cases about two weeks ago and that didn't actually come out and reflect itself in the deaths if, if that stat is, is correct and there's no reason to believe that it's not. It's just as reliable as any of the other stats. The fact that we have halved it within the span of a week is actually really, really good news. I was expecting it to increase just a little bit and then we wouldn't see the effects of the decrease in cases until about two weeks down the line. But this is interesting because the, the increase in cases has not reflected itself as prominently as we would have originally believed in the death count. So that's really, really good. Less Alabamians dying every day per this have, uh, because of this and having only 12 doing so per day, it's a big, big improvement from where we were even last week. I mean, that's, that's cutting it literally in half. So let's go ahead and look at the mask versus no mask comparison there. So the 28 day average for the period that we're in right now, in other words, 28 days before today, our, our 28 day average was 19.6. Now this week made a very, very big difference in this because our 28 day average last week was significantly higher. Having only a 12 12 deaths per day this week made a big, big difference in the the rate that you're seeing there at 19.6. The previous 28-day average, and these are the 28 days before the mask mandate was put into place, 14.3. So that's an increase of 5.3, which means that we still had more people dying with the mask mandate in place then without the mask mandate in place, looking back for a, a month at that point. But nonetheless, we are a lot closer to having similar stats than we were a week ago. Now, I don't think that that decline is because of the stat or because of the mask. In fact, I was reading a piece today in AL.com where AL.com, man, they are trying so, so hard to say that the mask mandate had something to do with the decrease in cases and hospitalizations and deaths. The problem is the stats, the, the statistics and the charts that they themselves show, well, that decline happens five weeks after the mask mandate is put into effect. For those of you that are keeping score at home, the gestation period, or I guess gestation period isn't correct, the uh, incubation period, that's correct, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm an ag guy, so sometimes I get my reproduction terms mixed up. That's a gestation period, completely different thing. 
the, the incubation period, the incubation period for this disease is only 14 days, and realistically, it's closer to 10. That's what most doctors will tell you is that, yes, the, the official one, just to be on the safe side, is 14, but realistically, it's more like 8 to 10 is the time between, and that, that's like, you know, the, the entire lifespan of the virus, and you'll, you'll be asymptomatic for maybe four or five days, and then you'll have symptoms for a few days after that, and so 14's like the absolute maximum. Really, most of the time, it's closer to about 8 to 10. And why that is significant is you're looking at this and you're trying to have people like AL.com trying to chalk this up to, oh, look, here's where the mask mandate started. And look, there's a decline going on right now. Well, yeah, but it took five weeks. If, if the mask were effective, we would start seeing these trends happening about two weeks afterward. We wouldn't have to wait five weeks for it. To, I mean... Again, they're, they're just throwing science out the window. It's funny because anybody that's even questioning the panic porn narrative that has been going around this country for the past several weeks is automatically referred to as a science denier, but the science doesn't line up with their narrative, and that's one of the things that I find incredibly funny. But nonetheless, this is the thing that AL.com is trying to do now. They're trying to push this ridiculous narrative that the mask mandate made a huge difference in all of this, because look at, we're in a decline right now. Look at that. And it happened right after Governor Ivey declared a mask mandate and made sure that even though it was completely unconstitutional, that you had to wear a mask even when you're outside in the 97 degree weather, not around anybody. Uh, I mean, that, that was an exaggeration, of course, but you know what I'm saying. Um, it's just funny that they try to chalk it up to that, despite the fact that the science would suggest that that's literally impossible considering the incubation period of this particular virus. There is no way that it could have had an effect five weeks later. And especially when you consider the fact that realistically, Alabamians were masking up two to three weeks before the mandate was even put into place. Uh, studies and surveys have shown this nationwide, not just in Alabama, that people were masking up more frequently before the states put any of this stuff into effect. That's the way it works here in America. The government follows us. We don't follow the government. They respond to us. We don't respond to them. And so the effectiveness of mask mandates is just, it's, it's hilarious to me that you've got Alabama media like AL.com trying to push that when all the evidence actually points in the opposite direction. Yes, we are going to see a decline, but that's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like a, a thing that, uh, y if you've ever seen Avatar The Last Airbender, fantastic, fantastic series. There's one episode where there's a fortune teller. Her name's Aunt Wu, and everybody in this town is just, like, religiously affiliated with this fortune teller. I mean, they are enamored with her. They listen to every word she says. Whatever she says is the gospel. And uh, there's really funny exchange between Sokka and another character that he meets in town. And he says, hey, I noticed your red shoes. And he says, yes, Aunt Wu told me that I would meet my true love. Uh, when I met my true love, I would be wearing red shoes. And he says, oh, and how often have you worn the red shoes since you've got that fortune? And he said, every single day. He goes, well, of course you're going to meet her <laughs> when you're wearing them then. Which, I mean, is accurate, because if the guy wears red shoes every day, and at any point in his life he meets his true love, then yes, he was wearing red shoes when that happened. 
So it's kind of a, a reversal of cause and effect thing, and that's exactly what's going on here. If you put a mask mandate in place and wait long enough, eventually you are going to get a decline. But whether or not the decline was caused by the mask mandate, well, if you put one into place and just wait until a decline shows up, then yes, of course, you're going to be able to say, see, mask mandate and also a decline. The time period between when the mask mandate started and when the decline started is kind of an important detail to factor in there. <laughs> it is just ridiculous what they try. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. AL.com is now the fortune teller lady from a kid's cartoon. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> all right, um, I did want to share a personal story real quick before we move on, and we are going to get to John Merrill's interview on mail-in uh, fraud and, and voter fraud and, and explaining how all of that works in just a second, and I, I know you're looking forward to that. That's, that's the part that I am most excited about on the show as well, but I wanted to share a quick personal story with you because I think that it's, it's something that's good and encouraging. So for those of you who don't know, my other job is I'm a resident director here at Faulkner University, and I have a lot of different tasks that I have to fill on campus, but one of them is I help out with chapel. Chapel's like a, a little worship service, a little devotional that we do every single day, or, well, not every single day now because of the virus, but we do it three times a day now, and uh, we do that, and, and I help facilitate it. Well, we have this thing called a spillover room, and because of the virus, we're spread out. We're not doing chapel all in one place. We've actually got three different rooms that we're doing it in. And so we've got the main room that chapel happens in, in the gym. And then they simulcast that to two other rooms. They have the multiplex, which you can see a lot of people. And they have this little thing called a spillover room, which is where you can go if you feel uncomfortable or you want to be away from a big crowd. It's not a very big room. You're not around that many people and so it's just a place that that Faulkner has so if people do feel uncomfortable they can go over to the spillover room and that's perfectly fine and they had me manning that particular one today well it's funny because we had not planned for this previously but here's what happened uh, I was manning the spillover room I had the students checked in and we were getting ready to start and I turned on the projector and everything was going and today was a singing day and oh about five seconds and I'm not exaggerating, literally as they were getting up and getting ready to sing, it cuts out on me. So here I am, it's only about three or four minutes into chapel, and I can't get the computer to boot back up to, to play the video, to, to live stream what's going on in chapel. And so I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, and about four or five minutes after trying to get the computer to come back up, the thing completely crashed. I couldn't even get the computer to come on. I mean, the computer would cut on, but it wouldn't show anything on the screen or the projector, and so I was just completely sunk. And so what I wound up doing is, since I am a minister myself and a song leader, I just stood up in front of the room, and there's only seven or eight people in there, I think, and uh, I led singing, because it was singing day. And I just sang, which was really awkward, because nobody else was singing with me. So I was literally just standing in front of about seven or eight people in this big classroom, and just singing by myself. And I don't get nervous in front of crowds at all. Like, I mean, you can tell, this is what I do for a living. And so public speaking is not exactly a problem for me. I do a, a podcast every day and, and, you know, it's just, I don't get nervous in front of people. It's, it's not something that happens with me. But even though I wasn't nervous, I was uneasy just because I kind of felt like, 
are these guys getting anything out of this? Like, am I just standing up here singing and it's not doing any good? Is any of this reaching anybody? Am I having any effect? Or am I just, are these just kids that are here at chapel for no reason other than they had to come there? It's a requirement to come to chapel and they just wanted to come here and, and now they don't have the video and now they just happen to have to listen to me sing a bunch of hymns by myself because nobody's joining in and singing with me. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, like, mad or anything, because it's a situation, you can't help it, it's just, you know, technology doesn't always work. And so, I just kind of, you know, I wasn't depressed or anything, but I was like, man, I, I really hate that that happened, I feel like I didn't really give anything to them, and I, I really felt like it, uh, because of the situation, everything fell on me to give them their little dose of, of spirituality that day, and I could kind of let them down, and I could tell they weren't really getting anything out of it. And then I got an email from one of the guys that was in attendance there that he said that he'd like to thank me for my, my leadership that I showed there and being willing to step up and do that, even though that was not what I was supposed to do, that I just went above and beyond. And uh, I think the real message in that is, and, and this is something I want to, to share with you, my audience, you know, little acts of kindness like that and, and letting people know that you appreciate things that, that they do, especially when it's something that they don't have to do, that can be so encouraging to people. I mean, because then I thought, okay, well, if nothing else, he got something out of it, and if that's the case, then it's all worth it. And sometimes extending that to somebody else, whether it's just something as simple and relatively you know, benign as just sending an email and saying, hey, I appreciate that, it encouraged me, and it helped me out. I mean, that has a real effect on people. And one of the things that I'm going to endeavor to do in the future is to make sure that I try to be that kind of person that is an encourager, kind of the, the uh, Barnabas effect, that, that I want to be somebody that encourages people that when they're doing something that they don't have to do or that they may be struggling to do, that I make sure that I say something to them. Just, just a thought to leave with you before we go on to John Merrill. And one other thing that I wanted to tell you about, which is just, I know I don't know how interested the audience is going to be in this. I don't know how interested y'all are in this, but I just want to share it because it's such good news. Uh, just found out earlier today that a couple that I visited with in Ukraine that we taught, and this was almost an entire year ago because it was in October of last year. It turns out that even though we were kind of depressed and kind of upset that it didn't end up in a baptism because we really thought that we were going to convert the family that we were speaking to that day. I, I was 100% ready to and, and looking forward to going down to the little mountain stream and the little village that we were visiting and baptizing some people, and it didn't happen. But I found out today they actually were baptized by the minister there in the Ivano-Frankis region there in Ukraine, and so that's just a really cool thing that I wanted to share with everybody, that the, the angels in heaven are rejoicing, as we know from the scripture, that one of God's children has come back home, and so we certainly do appreciate that, and, and thanks so much for John Cackleman, who's been on the show before, that, you know, let me know about that. Let's go ahead and go to a break, and we'll be back in just a minute with John Merrill, the Secretary of State from the state of Alabama. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back to Tactics right here on News Radio 1440. Thank you so much for being with us. My next guest is somebody that is in charge 
of our elections here in Alabama. It is indeed the Secretary of State of our own state, the great state of Alabama. Secretary John Merrill joins us right now. Good afternoon, Mr. Secretary. How are you, my friend? I'm doing quite well. How have you been? Everything's great. I'm excited to have an opportunity to visit with you today. Well, we're certainly glad that you've agreed to come on the show with us. You've always been very, very generous with your time. I know that you've got a lot to do, especially right now with an election. Just, what is it, 78 days away, I think, now? That's right, and 75 days until the election, and 70 days before is the last day you can make application for your absentee ballot. Right. So a, a lot of very important deadlines coming up for you and your department. So I know that, you know, you've been paying attention to the news. We've all seen in the news. There's been a lot said and, and probably a lot said incorrectly about mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. And, and that's been a very hot topic of discussion. And so I thought, who better to talk to us about that than the man that's in charge of handling all of that for our state? So uh, I know that there's a lot of ignorance on this issue, and frankly, some of it even from me. Like, I think that because it's not a sexy issue, it's not something that really grabs people attention, uh, people's attention most of the time, a lot of us are not starting out with a whole lot of knowledge on mail-in ballots and how they work. So if you could, just give us a baseline. Talk about what the mail-in ba ballots are and, and what they do in the state of Alabama, what our voting laws are for mail-in votes, and how it compares to other states in the union. Well, look, that's a great question, and I think it is incumbent on us to make sure our voters understand the difference between universal voting by mail and absentee voting by mail. In universal voting by mail, what that would mean in the state of Alabama is that all 3,631,381 registered voters in Alabama would receive a ballot mailed to the address that they had provided for their addition to the voter rolls, mm -hmm. whatever address they had, they would get a ballot mailed to them whether they wanted it or not. Now, with the absentee voting by mail, the voter would have to indicate to the absentee election manager through an application process that they would like to have an absentee ballot mailed to the address that they provide, and they have to include a copy of their valid photo ID. Mm -hmm. Once that happens, they successfully return it. They will have a ballot mailed to the address that they assign, and then they can cast their ballot for the candidate of their choice. Right. So a, a big difference there with just having it sent to you by merit of you being registered to vote versus you actually requesting it. I know that a lot of Alabamians have probably not ever gone through the process of absentee voting. I have once in my life because I was living in Auburn at the time and I had classes on election day. There was no way I was going to be able to make it back to Millbrook to be able to vote. And so I went through the absentee ballot process and granted that was a few years ago. I, I guess it would have been about a decade ago now, uh, but the process was, was very simple. Uh, I could see how maybe you could try to abuse it if you were trying to work around the system, but from what I could tell, very secure. I had to identify myself. I had to let the people in Elmore County know who I was, and they had to check off that I was actually registered there, and I, that was my actual address. And so um, I, I, th that is a world of difference than just everybody on the voter rolls getting a ballot mailed to them. Absolutely. And a couple of other things that I think need to be noted. Number one is the states that do this the best, which are Washington, 
mm-hmm. Oregon and Colorado will tell you that in order to initiate the universal vote by mail effort, your state should have at least 60 percent of your ballots currently being returned by mail. So the next question for your very informed listeners would be, well, where is Alabama in that number? Well, we're at four percent. So we're 56 percent from the position where we should even begin the conversation. The other thing that you need to know is that those states will tell you that in order to successfully implement this effort, it takes a five year period to make sure it's done right and well, not five months, five years. The other thing that you need to know is that in order for us to pay for an election, it costs five and a half million dollars per election segment. So for a primary, for a runoff, and for a general election, it would be $16.5 million. Now, if you just look at one segment of the universal vote-by-mail effort, it costs $18.5 million. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a difference between $60 million and $16.5 million. That's something that needs to be given some consideration as well. So in the state of Alabama, there are massive logistical issues, is what you're saying, to moving to this. There's no way we could do it by the time that the November election would come up. It would be very difficult to even pull it off between now and the next presidential election. And also there's budgetary concerns on top of all that, is what you're saying. You got that right. And it's the same for every state in the union that is just now considering implementing this, no matter Mm -hmm. how much money the federal government gives you through the CARES Act or through the HEROES Act or through other resources that come from them to you, you need to understand that this is not an easy thing to do. There are very few fulfillment houses in the nation that actually have the wherewithal to be able to provide a ballot to the total number of registered voters in any state in the union. And those fulfillment houses that currently do this for those three states I mentioned earlier, as well as Hawaii and Utah, mm. are at maximum capacity. As a matter of fact, some of them were not even able to make their standard met because of people who were impacted by the COVID back in April, May, and June. Right. And one of the things, and this is part of the reason that I knew that you were the person we needed to talk to on this, uh, a very unfortunately very common reaction to all of this is that if you're against mail-in ballots, then it's just because you don't care about people and you don't care about the pandemic. You're not taking it seriously and you don't want people that are sick or are vulnerable to vote. Um, to which, you know, I've said that there's like you said, and, and laid out much better than I could, uh, that there's all kinds of logistical issues. And on top of that, and this has always been my response was like, because the vast majority of the people making this argument happen to be the ones that are pulling against President Trump in this upcoming election. I was like, why would President Trump intentionally disenfranchise his most loyal voting bloc, which is elderly people? That's right. And the other thing that needs to be remembered is that in order to have this effort be successful, mm-hmm. you need to be able to implement it without any obstacles. And most people would have to pass legislation. Many of our legislators are not in uh, a position to be called back for special sessions now, or they're not having their regular sessions. So it puts a number of states at a significant disadvantage in order to even consider something like this at this time. 
Okay, so we've talked a lot about the logistics and some of the roadblocks to that. Let's actually dive into, are there significant security concerns? Like, even if we had the five years, even if we had the budget to do it, uh, are mail-in ballots inherently more dangerous or more prone to fraud, I guess is the best way to say it, than in-person ballots? Are there extra security concerns there? Well, there are very significant security concerns. One of those is what they call the signature match, mm-hmm. where they say that they take the mailed-in ballot and they match the signature against the one that's on file with the voter's uh, name in the central polling site. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's difficult to convince me that they're actually evaluating each and every signature that comes back because I know how much time it takes for us whenever we have individuals that submit petitions, try to gain ballot access. And we're only talking about approximately five or 6,000 names that have to be matched against a voter list. Right. And when you're talking about people that would be concerned about getting the returns in on time, having people know who the winners were on election day, and to think that those signatures could be matched in a short period of time, we're not being realistic. Yeah, and that's a, I would say it's a secondary concern, but it's not one that should be written off just because it is secondary. The time in which it would take to count these are are significantly longer with the mail-in ballots and I mean, I hate to say it, but with the state of our republic and the way that it is and and the divisiveness, I just don't think anything dragging this out because, I mean, you remember just as well as I do. I mean, I was a kid then, but uh, how incredibly nasty it became in the country when we were debating back and forth with the whole hanging chads thing with Al Gore and George Bush. And I just think like from a, you know, almost from a spiritual standpoint, that cannot be something that is good for the country to have to wait a week or so. And then we're not totally a hundred percent sure whether or not the right person actually won the election. You are correct. And I tell you anything that will take away from people's, um, Confidence in the election is something that does not really need to be advanced at this particular time. Oh, for sure. And and I know that that's something that has been instrumental. I mean, yes, we're in unique times now, but uh, frankly, that's been something that's been instrumental to our country for a very long time. People have to be able to trust in the voting system because otherwise it's, it's much harder to convince them to abide by a government that they're not <laughs> totally convinced is actually uh, subject to their vote and to be changed by their vote. That's correct. And I think that's another reason to seriously consider all of these questions that have been raised about universal voting by mail. So one question that I would have about Alabama specifically, is your department anticipating an influx of mail-in ballots due to the coronavirus? And if so, are y'all prepared to deal with that? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the most number of absentee ballots that have ever been successfully cast in the history of the state is 88,000 plus in the 2016 Obama re-election effort. Uh, We believe that we're going to be well north of 150,000 absentee ballot applications by October 29th, which is the last day to successfully submit an application. Now, the thing to remember about all of that is that people don't need to be concerned about whether or not their vote will make it through the mail process on October the 25th, October the 28th, or November the 2nd. The day to be concerned about that is 
August the 20th or August the 21st. That's the reason we're promoting it today. If you wait until then and then you say, well, I didn't have enough time, you have delayed the process yourself and you have made a conscious decision not to participate until you put yourself in peril. And it's just like a sign a lady used to have in the office in the Tuscaloosa County Board of Education Mm -hmm. where she said, uh, poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. <laughs> I, I've seen signs similar to that before, and, and I understand that, you know, if you're concerned about this, if you want to go ahead and get your, your vote in, you have a legitimate reason for absentee because Alabama is a state that you have to have some kind of excuse. Uh, yeah, but let me stop you right there okay. because this All right, is very important. It's yeah. very important for your listeners to know that the – Code and the Constitution of Alabama, whenever we're in a time of declared state of emergency, gives me the power and the authority as the Secretary of State to indicate a reason for all 3,631,381 voters to vote absentee. And Mm. the box to check on the application is the one that says I'm ill or infirmed and will be unable to appear at my polling site on Election Day. That's the second box on the application. And then you make a copy of your photo ID. You submit that along with your completed application. You'll get your ballot uh, the second full week of September. Go ahead and complete it and return it. Okay, excellent. That That's good because I wouldn't have known how to instruct people on how to do that. So I appreciate you bringing that information to us. Yes, sir. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask about, too, uh, because... The House, I'm sure that you were aware of this, they recently, and and I'm talking about the United States House, uh, the House recently passed a coronavirus bill that actually included in the bill basically a federal law that would mandate every single state has to have universal mail-in ballots and also said that, and, and this was the part that was most astounding to me, they actually had a provision that they had to allow for ballot harvesting. In other yes, words. and I testified against that legislation uh, before the House Committee on Administration. I was invited uh, by Congressman Rodney Davis from Illinois to testify on behalf of the secretaries of state and election officials throughout the nation. Mm-hmm. And I, I will tell you that um, our words fell on deaf ears from the Democratic side. As a matter of fact, the Democratic chair of the committee actually cut me off when I was uh, telling her about one of the things that I knew was making it easier to vote and harder to cheat in Alabama, but she was having none of it. She didn't want to hear it. And since we weren't in Washington testifying, we were doing it through Zoom. Right. She just cut my mic off and I was not able to continue to make my presentation. So to, to give some background to our viewers, because I think that this is really important and, and what scares me is that bill to me is an indication because it actually passed the House. I mean, obviously it didn't go anywhere in the Senate, but uh, it's terrifying that that could be where the Democrats want to lead with having federal mandates on state elections. I think part of the reason that our voting is so consistent and is so secure and people by and large do have confidence, especially compared to other countries, is because we have a state-by-state system that the federal government can't control and this would not only breach that, but but also the individual things that we were just talking about. So if you could just talk a little bit about some of the things that this bill would have done and, and why it's a bad idea. Well, exactly what you were talking about, and that's the reason Congressman Davis, who is the ranking member 
uh, on the House Committee on Administration asked me to come because we believe that America is a democratic republic. And as a democratic republic, each and every state should be responsible for their own elections. Now, if people are doing things that are nefarious, if they're trying to prevent people from voting, they're trying to engage in voter suppression, those things need to be called out. Sure. But these people that are calling out what we're doing, they're entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And what we're doing is we're making it easier to vote and harder to cheat. And they don't like that because it, it takes away their narrative of their liberal agenda that they're trying to promote. And what we believe is that if a state wants to have universal voting by mail, they ought to be able to do so. But the federal government in Washington should not tell us that. If we believe that we should have voter ID, we ought to be able to have it if our people pass it. But we're not saying that every state in the union should have it because every state in the union should have their own choice as to what they need to do. So we need to be prepared to defend our positions and explain why that's best for our people. But we don't need to be trying to put a direction on each and every state in the union on what they need to do when it comes to elections. Well, I couldn't agree more because um, I may not like the voting laws in Maine or Idaho or California or Colorado, but that's really none of my business. I mean, I'm not voting in any of those states. Now, if they were disenfranchising people intentionally or like, unfortunately, there's just been at least suspicion of uh, states passing laws in order to enable non-citizens to vote, then it becomes my business. But as far as uh, the, the state voting laws, as long as it's not something that it, you know, impedes somebody, that's really not something that I am personally concerned with. And I wish that other states took that same sentiment when it came to states like Alabama. Well, we certainly would be a lot better off. And yet one of the things that you just described is one of the things that we're currently seeing. I mean, there are states in the union that are enabling voters to participate that are non-citizens. Right. That's a problem, my friend. Oh, for sure. And we, have, we have to continue to push back against that liberal narrative that just because you can fog a mirror and you're currently residing in that particular place, then you need to be able to vote. I mean, that's no different than me visiting the Methodist church next Sunday. And as a uh, Christian Southern Baptist, member of Calvary Baptist Church, me voting when they say, okay, we're going to call a new pastor at the Methodist Church, that they don't need my input. I'm not a member of their church. Right. That doesn't they mean that they're dehumanizing you or think that you're not a nice guy. You're just not a member of the church. That's exactly right. So uh, on the uh, bill, could you, could you give the audience a little background in voting harvesting? Because that's one that really scares me, and I, I know a little bit about it, but I'm sure that you would be uh, better able to articulate that and, and explain that to the audience as well. Well, the ballot harvesting effort would indicate that a particular individual would be able to gather ballots from multiple people and turn them in at one time as the courier Mm -hmm. of those ballots, taking them to the place where they would be counted at the central receiving site. That's a problem. In Alabama, that's illegal right. because the only person that can turn their ballot in is the voter. You cannot even turn your ballot in for your wife. As a matter of fact, if you submitted an absentee ballot application 
with another person's in the same envelope, then that's going to be rejected. Same thing if you returned a ballot with another voter's ballot. It's going to be rejected because that's not permissible by state law. This is even going above that to say that once you receive your ballot, you mark your ballot, then someone else can take your ballot and turn it in for you. Who's to say that person might change your ballot if they chose to? Or if they were able to get your ballot before you even received it, complete it for you and return it on your behalf unbeknownst to you. Well, and, and that's one of the things that concerns me. Of course, the ballot harvesting would, would be an issue that we're talking about where you could just, you know, change somebody's vote on the way in. But that's one of my issues, and it kind of alludes to my, one of my issues with the universal ballot, is like, for example, I have a sister. And granted, this one doesn't 100% work with her because she's now a citizen of the state of Mississippi. But let's say that her official legal address were still the same as mine. And I just happened to get her ballot in the mail. Well, I could just mark it off and then send it in without her ever knowing if I just happen to be the one that checks the mail. And so, I I mean, like you could have somebody voting three, four, five times that, you know, just that's just their vote and their opinion. And they're the one sending it in. But their whole family may just not know that their ballots have come in and their ballots have already been sent in. And look, we're already seeing that in states like California, where 83 ballots were mailed to one apartment in a particular (laughs) apartment complex, and only two people lived in that apartment. And that's a problem because those people could take those ballots, mark them for the candidate of their choice, and submit it on their behalf. Oh, oh, for sure. And, and we have had real life scenarios where that happened. We had one that, uh, what was it? I believe it was in Florida, if I'm not mistaken, that they found out that there were people that were going through people's mailboxes and just taking random people's ballots and then signing them and mailing them in. Of course they were. And we continue to see that all across the country. And that's a major, major problem, but one we will not be having in Alabama. Well, it does uh, fill me with confidence on that. So let's say that there's somebody that is interested in doing an absentee ballot. They, they need to go ahead and get that done. Uh, what would the steps that they need to take to go ahead and, and get that process started if they were going to do it right now? Well, they're very simple. There's a couple of them, actually. If you're going to vote absentee in person, you can go to the absentee election manager's office, complete the application on site, You can present your photo ID. They will make a copy of that. They will check it. Then they will give you your ballot. You can vote for the candidate of your choice on site. You can do that early. Now, if you'd rather do it by mail, you can call the absentee election manager's office. They will mail you an absentee ballot application. You successfully complete it. Mm -hmm. Then when they process it, they'll send you your ballot in the mail. You also can download your absentee ballot application at alabamavotes.gov. It's in a fillable PDF. You can complete it and then submit it through the mail. Then they'll forward you your ballot when those are able to be processed. Then you vote for the candidate of your choice. Then your vote will be opened on election day, November the 3rd. And that's the procedure. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Secretary Merrill. Is there anything that maybe I didn't think to talk about or to ask you about that you may need to let the audience know? 
Nothing I can think of, but if you need to reach me, you know where I'm at, and I'm always excited to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, Secretary Merrill. You've always been generous with your time, and we certainly appreciate you taking the time to reach out to the voters of Alabama and make sure that they know that their votes are going to be counted and only be counted once. Thank you, my friend. All right. I appreciate it. That is, of course, Secretary of State John Merrill, the Secretary of State of the great state of Alabama. And if you do have any interest in, in, you know, this process or to learn more about it, he has a website that you can go to. You can get in touch with him. He's one of the most accessible public officials that I've ever dealt with. And, and that is high praise coming from me. So we de definitely appreciate him taking the time out of his day to speak with us. Well, we're going to take a quick break here and we'll be right back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is requiring their employees to wear masks. Now, this should come as a surprise to nobody because the Wisconsin governor has mandated masks, and this is a government entity that is run by the state, so... You know, the Department of Natural Resources, of course, they have to wear a mask and they have to wear a mask in meetings. The thing that is stupid about it is that now they are requiring mask for meetings, even if it's a teleconference meeting over Zoom. I promise this is their new standard now. You can check this out. This is from an email on July the 31st that they sent out, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Also wear your mask, even if you are home, to participate in a virtual meeting that involves being seen, such as on Zoom or another video conferencing platform by the DNR staff. Set safety example, which set the safety example, which shows you as a DNR public service employee care about the safety and health of others. This is one of the craziest things that I've ever seen. And the funny thing about it is, is they admit in the email, oh, we know that this has nothing to do with the virus. We know that you're in zero danger of transferring the virus or getting the virus from somebody else. We want you to wear the mask just so other people can see you wearing the mask. It's absolute insanity. Do they, first of all, I'll just go with this. This is virtual sig virtue signaling of the highest level. They absolutely know and are even admitting in the email that it doesn't do any good. They know that it's useless. They know that there's no scientific evidence whatsoever that there's even a possibility you could prevent from giving the virus to somebody else or receiving it from somebody else. But they want you to wear it anyway so it'll show everybody else that you're on board with the mask thing. Here's the reason that this bothers me so much. The masks have become a religious totem. It's just like people who go around with, and I know I'm going to offend some people, but I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm obligated to speak the truth. And I'm not saying that these things are inherently bad. I'm just saying that they can become bad. It's like people that wear a giant cross around their neck to show off to everybody that they're a Christian. Or when they do the, the cross thing on Ash Wednesday to show everybody that they're a Catholic. Or to uh, just to throw another religion in there for the Jews. You remember the Jews, one of the things that Christ criticized the Pharisees for is they would wear these giant phylactrophies on their, their robes or right there on their forehead 
and these things were, were like leather satchels that had little pieces of scripture in them. Now, it wasn't so that they could like, you know, take the scripture out and read it. It was to show everybody else, look, I'm a righteous person. I'm a Jew that is, uh, you know, so righteous and so holy and so in tune with God that I'm wearing this giant symbol of my religion on my head for everybody else to see. And, and Jesus was noticeably angry about this specifically because they were more worried about how other people reacted to the religious symbol than they were actually being righteous. That was the problem that Jesus had. The mask is the same thing to some people. Now, I do want to preface this. That does not mean that every single person that wears the mask, that it is a religious totem to them. But the people that are writing this email that are saying, no, no, it's really just for show. Or the reporters, like you remember right here in the state of Alabama, in Mobile, where we had, or wait, this was Gulf Shores, yeah. So in Gulf Shores, you may remember a few months ago, we had a CNN reporter coming down to Gulf Shores, Alabama. I think it was uh, right back at the, the, the very beginning of the pandemic, or, or right, no, it was right when we were starting to reopen things. Um, and they went down to Gulf Shores and did a report, and the guy was wearing a mask on the beach when it's windy and 97 degrees outside and he's six feet away from everybody he's still wearing the mask on the beach despite the fact that it's not doing him a lick of good and then the second the cameras start rolling there were people taking pictures of him with the mask off walking around on the exact same beach like he knows that the mask isn't doing him any good why does he have it on when the camera is on him because because it is a religious totem to him He's virtue signaling to everybody else, hey, I'm on board with the mask thing. And we've seen this with several other stories. I was just using one as a local because, you know, I'm a local news guy. Uh, but there are many, many examples from all over the country. In fact, I, if I'm not mistaken, this one actually comes from Wisconsin. I know it was one of those Rust Belt states where there was a reporter and he's there on camera and he's wearing a mask and he's he's walking past and talking about how there's too many people out here not wearing masks and there's another guy that walks past and he notices that he's not wearing a mask and then this guy starts filming with his camera and he goes and he's not wearing a mask either he's like yeah and neither are your camera crew <laughs> and then the reporter's just like uh, uh he's got no answer to it i'm not from the very beginning i've never been anti-mask i've been anti-mask mandates but i've never been anti-mask nor am I saying that I'm absolutely a thousand percent sure the masks do absolutely nothing. I've not seen evidence that they do help prevent the spread of the disease, but maybe they help in some ways. But even with all of that aside, there are certain people that has become this religious totem that I have to put the mask on to show solidarity with everybody that is on the pro-mask side, whether or not it's actually doing any good or not. To them, it's more important for other people to see them wearing it because they're virtue signaling. And really, what this is boiling down to, when you get to its core, the issue here is scientism over science. Because if you were following the science, you would never recommend anybody wear a mask on a teleconference. You would also not be wearing a mask when you're on TV reporting, despite the fact that you're six feet away from everybody. And, you know, it's 87 degrees outside and there's no chance you're getting the disease from that point. Uh, the, the reason that they're doing it is because 
they worship science as though it's a god. That science must be conjured rather than science being a useful tool to be used. Because that's what science is, right? It's a method. It's not even an ideology. Science is just a method. It is a method for discovering truth. And I'm a pretty big fan of science. There's a reason I have a bachelor's of science in ag communication. There's a reason that I specifically chose a communication degree where I would be taking harder sciences, harder biologies, and all because I believe in that stuff. I think that that's important. The scientism people don't. To them, it's about uh, making a political statement and a statement that I'm on board with science. And also there's 87 genders. Like it, uh, it, It's all of that stuff. Scientism is the belief that science is some kind of magical MacGuffin that solves all of your problems. And it also helps resolve a cognitive dissonance. And I think that's the reason that a lot of these people buy into this is that when they, they celebrate, for example, Herman Cain dying of it because he didn't really like wearing the mask and he at one point went to a Trump rally, which was a, you know, a mask gathering event. The reason that they can do that is because they believe it creates some kind of cognitive dissonance psychologically in their own mind where they're kind of like, well, this person did all the things wrong and he didn't believe in science hard enough. Again, making it more like a religion than actual science. Like if you believe hard enough that it's somehow going to help you, that he didn't believe in it, I do believe in it, and I'm doing all the right things, therefore it can't touch me. Well, no, you're at risk either way. There are some things you can do that certainly reduce your risk, but the risk is still there. And a lot of these people treat it as though it's not. They treat it as though science is a god, a deity, to be worshipped, and if they make the right sacrifices, and if they do the, the religious rituals exactly the right way, that the god of science is going to favor them and protect them. That's not what science is, y'all. Science is, is not an entity, it's not a deity, it, it doesn't care what you do or don't do. Science is just a method. It's a very good method. It's one that I've spent a lot of time and a, a big portion of my life studying. But ultimately, that's all it is. You have to keep science and politics in its proper place. In so many ways, science and politics, they're idols. They have become idols. They're not always idols. They can be good things, too. I wouldn't be doing a political talk show if I didn't believe that, but they're idols. And that really brings me to this. What this assumes is that people are morons and they are essentially animals that just, you know, monkey see, monkey do. If I see someone wearing the mask, then psychologically that will encourage me to wear my mask and that kind of thing. It's ridiculous. People make their own decisions. And if a person sees a thousand people not wearing masks and decides, okay, well, I've got a, I've, I'm going to wear my mask to protect myself, that can happen. People are adults. They can make their own decisions. They don't need you, a ridiculous government bureaucrat, to model some kind of behavior for them. They're adults. They can make their own decisions. Do you think that people are so dumb that they can watch a whole bunch of people on teleconference that aren't wearing masks and going, oh, I guess masks not, must not be all that important if they're not wearing them in their own house by themselves? I, this goes to a, a core liberal belief, unfortunately. They believe the average person is just too stupid to think for themselves and they need the wise, uh, enlightened despots of the government, the government bureaucracy, to show them the light and show them the way forward. Conservatives, we tend to be individualist and we don't believe in all that stuff. 
I mean, we believe that they can be helpful and we believe that part of leadership is examples, but we also believe that people have common sense and can look at things and make their own decisions. And that really does show a pretty substantial divide between these two ideologies is because I wouldn't look at somebody wearing a mask or not wearing a mask in their own home doing a teleconference and assume that I need to model whatever behavior they are. And that brings me to one final point for all the people that are going, ha this doesn't apply to me because I'm against the mask. Well, that can be an idol too. And frankly, I've met some people that I think not wearing a mask is kind of an idol to them. I try to make sure that even though I'm not really convinced about the effectiveness of masks that I don't fall into that camp, but not wearing a mask can be just as much of an idol as wearing the mask. If, if you're one of those people that, you know, just doesn't do it to, to make some kind of statement, I genuinely can understand that. I'm somebody that believes in political protest and the, the power of free speech, but you can go too far with that. Like it, even though there have been times where I don't wear a mask specifically because I don't like people telling me that I have to, there are also times where I defer to the fact that I don't want to affect somebody else's freedom. Or if I'm going into a place where I know there's going to be a lot of vulnerable people, that I might wear one then just because I want to be considerate of them. But you can turn not wearing a mask into an idol as well. Because if you're doing that to make a political statement and you want other people to see you not wearing a mask, well, to be frank, that can be just as much of an idol as what they're talking about. But when we talk about idolatry and modern-day idolatry, in a lot of ways, science and politics are just like suns and rivers and all of the other things that people back in the olden days used to worship. It's the worship of nature. And also, it's things that aren't necessarily in and of themselves bad, like the sun, very good thing. It's a blessing, blessing given to us by God during the time of creation. Same thing with rivers and soil and trees and all the other things that people used to worship. Those things aren't bad things, but we have to make sure that we keep them in their proper place. That's ultimately what we need to realize, is that even things that are a good thing, like science, like... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm more hesitant to say politics is a good thing, but, it, you know, it can be. So even things that are amoral and, and are just good or bad based on the way that you use them, those things can become idols if we don't make sure to remember that they are not God. God is God. And we have to always keep that at the forefront of our mind. These things, like politics, like religion, they can be very good when used correctly, but they are not worthy of religious devotion. That is something that belongs to God and God alone. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 11 through 13. Now, the only setup that you really need to know for this particular passage of Scripture is that Samuel has gone to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, 
and he has gone there for the express purpose. Well, not the express purpose, because he actually does have another side purpose that they just kind of conjured up to make sure that uh, Samuel was not killed by King Saul. Little little pretense going on there. But David is not in the house with Samuel and his father and his brothers. And Samuel has already decided that he's going to go ahead and pick who is going to be, out of Jesse's sons, who is going to be the Lord's anointed. And he goes over all of his brothers, and uh, several of them are handsome and good-looking, and Samuel's like, surely it's got to be this one, right, Lord? And the Lord each time tells him, nope, that's not the one I've chosen. Nope, pass him over. And so they go through this seven times, seven sons, and then this little episode happens between Jesse and Samuel, and the rest, as they say, is history. So let's look at Samuel 16, verses 11 through 13, where it says, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon, the, upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, a couple things that I want you to really pick up on on this story this is our introduction to the character of David, one of the most significant characters in the entire Old Testament, and without a doubt Israel's greatest king and the one that establishes the lineage of Christ and every single legitimate heir, and this is something that is observed even by the Jews to this day. There is no such thing as a legitimate heir to David's throne. There is no such thing as a legitimate king in Israel unless he be of the seed of David, and that remains true to this day. Now, of course, there is a heir of the seed of David on the throne of Israel and the rest of the world too, and his name is Jesus Christ, but you know, the Jews don't, don't see it that way. But the point is, that standard is established here. From here on throughout now to the end of time, only an heir of David is allowed to be king in Israel. And so this is a very, very significant event in Israel's history. And so I find it fascinating that this is the introduction we're given to David. Where's David? He is tending his father's flocks. How profound is that? The man that eventually becomes, and of course he's the ancestor of Christ now, but we, we can see all that through hindsight, but the man who sets the stage for the coming of the Savior of the world the very first time we ever get to see him, we, we get to see who David is, he is tending the flocks of his father. I mean, you couldn't plan that better. This is one of the uh, hundreds and hundreds of internal truths that the Bible is something that was, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, penned by the finger of God himself. Yes, he did it through the inspiration of mortal men, but there's just no way that a human being could have come up with all of this, that this would have fit together so perfectly, that this person who eventually his lineage will bring about the Messiah, which by the way means anointed one, so we, we're seeing the anointing of David in this first little episode, that 
his first introduction is, well, he's a shepherd and he's taking care of the flocks that are owned by his father, and that's why he's not with his brothers. I mean, that's about as profound as it gets. Remember that Jesus left his family. I mean, he didn't abandon them, but he did leave them behind to go to his ministry, and that's the introduction we get to adult Jesus. Of course, there's the nativity, and then we get a brief glimpse of him as a young man. But when we're looking at the story of Christ, the earliest thing that we see from him other than his childhood is he's going out away from his family to tend to the sheep of his father. And so this being the way that the character is introduced is incredibly, incredibly significant. So what are the things that we learn about David from this little episode? Well, first, he's not highly esteemed. There's a reason everybody else is at the big special dinner with the big special dinner guest, and David's not. It's not because Jesse didn't love his son. It's not because he, you know, had some kind of animosity towards David or anything like that. It just boils down to the fact that he's the youngest. That's all it is. He just happens to be the youngest son, and they needed somebody to go out there and attend the flocks, and so when you're the youngest, you get the short end of the stick sometimes. And it's not really as true in our society today, but it certainly was back then. That was just the culturally accepted thing to do, is that the youngest, you know, sometimes you got the shaft being the youngest, and that's the reason that he's out there. So he's not highly esteemed or thought of as, as being... Uh, significant or special among his brothers. That's the reason he's not with them there. That's pretty Christ-like. And then you've also got the fact that he's a shepherd. We've already talked about that. Jesus becomes the good shepherd. That's actually, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the symbol that was used early on by Christianity is not the cross. The earliest symbols of Christians, and, and early Christians were really, really into symbols, uh, the earliest symbols used by Christians were the Jesus fish that we're all accustomed to now. And the most common and most popular one was actually an image of Jesus with a lamb around his neck. And there's several reasons why. I mean, first of all, he is the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God. And then you also have the idea that he is the good shepherd, so the one that leaves the ninety and nine and, and brings the lost sheep back. And so the fact that Jesus is, you know, thought of as a shepherd, especially by his earliest disciples, and that's the symbol that they most related to when they were talking about Christ, and the fact that he is the son of David, he is the, the ultimate uh, ancestor of David, and he's in that lineage, that's not a, a mistake. And on top of that, we also see that he's a dutiful son. I'm sure that David, if given the choice between tending the sheep and going and having, the di having dinner with a prophet that has come to visit his father, like, if he gets his choice, he's probably going to go with the dinner, I would imagine. But you know what? He chooses to work. Jesse asked him to take care of his sheep, or, or one of his older brothers, who, you know, would have had the authority to do so, and because they have the authority of his father, or his father himself asked him this, he goes out and tends his father's flocks. He is a dutiful son. He is one that cares about his father. He is one that keeps the commandments, honors his father, just like it says in the Ten Commandments, and goes forth and does this. So you see a lot of Christ symbolism woven into this very, very brief introduction. We've only read three verses. And look at how much lines up with Christ already. And so let's get into one thing that is kind of different about David and Christ in this little introduction. Why is David handsome? 
it makes note here, and it goes through this story, if you watch the previous episode that we did, where we were talking about how God said, um, no, don't, don't pick the, the big attractive one that's the oldest, I think Elihu is, is his name, says, don't, don't pick him because he's attractive and because he's tall and good-looking like Saul was. You're looking at the outward appearance. I want you to look at the heart. And God says that I'm the one looking at the heart. And yet, interestingly enough, the Bible, just a few verses later, goes out of its way to say, oh, and, and by the way, this David character, yeah, he's uh, ruddy, which means red. By the way, that was an attractive feature. It's kind of like saying a, a woman is fair. Uh, and that was a, a term of endearment. Ruddy is kind of the same thing. And it says, he's ruddy, he's handsome, and he has beautiful eyes. Well, I mean, you know, it's describing David as a very handsome individual that you would desire. But God was still looking at the heart. Yes, David did have outward beauty. But God didn't care about that. You see, Samuel was going to pick basically based on that alone... And God says, no, I'm looking at the heart, and yet his selection happens to be a person that is good-looking. But that's not the reason that he picked them. That's the difference. Samuel was going to pick the oldest one because he was good-looking. God happens to pick a good-looking boy, but it's not because he's good-looking. God is still judging him based on his heart, which I think should lead us to believe that attractiveness is not a bad thing, but it's also something that God just isn't all that concerned with. Maybe he is in some sense, and, and I don't mean, I'm going to explain myself in a second. I'm not saying that, you know, God favors attractive people like a human would. But maybe it's important to God for certain tasks in certain ways. But ultimately, God's just not all that concerned with that. And I think that that's the example that we ought to follow, is that, yeah, we can notice it. Yeah, it can be useful from time to time. But ultimately, we shouldn't really be focused on it, and we shouldn't be making decisions based on that. But we also can't go too far the other way and think that attractiveness is a bad thing. David was a very attractive person, and he also had a very good heart. God was more concerned with the heart part, but he wasn't bothered by the fact that David happens to be an attractive individual. But that is a contrast between him and Jesus, because Isaiah 53.2 specifically comments on this and says that there's nothing about Jesus that was particularly attractive or significant in any way that would suggest that he's something that men would be drawn to because of his physical appearance. And yet with David, it, it points out that, yeah, actually David was. He was a, a good-looking man. Or, you know, in this part of the story, a good-looking boy. But I think one of the reasons that that is true is that God, you know, created David just like he created Christ's physical body as well. And so if one's attractive and one's not... I think that we can draw a lesson from that. You see, David led a worldly kingdom. And whether we like it or not, people tend to look up to leaders that are good-looking. I mean, I wish that they didn't, but you can tell this, and this is where the advantage of me being a political guy comes in. Normally, politics can be settled based on who's the more attractive candidate. I remember that, uh, I believe it was John Stossel that did this exercise where he did a survey and he used local politicians in places that they would not have been running, so they would have been unknown to the people he was talking to. 
And he went through and he just asked the people, okay, which of these two people do you think is more attractive? And with something like an 85% success rate, those people who had never seen these people before in their life were able to pick the person that won the contest based solely on who was the more attractive. Looks play a pretty significant role in human interaction, especially when picking leaders. It probably shouldn't, but it does. And so... When we consider that, maybe that's why God made David handsome. Because he knew David, who was going to be running a physical worldly kingdom here in Israel and was going to do so for many years, that would give him kind of an edge, and that would make him better equipped to do the task that God had assigned for him in life. So why didn't Jesus get that? Because Jesus rules a spiritual kingdom where that's just not that important. Jesus didn't need to be attractive. Jesus didn't need to be somebody that people would naturally gravitate to because of his appearance, because A, he had a, a natural gravitas with people, a natural charisma with people based on who he was rather than what he looked like. But more importantly than that, Jesus just simply didn't need that because his kingdom was a spiritual one. He is ruling the kingdom of heaven. He didn't need physical appearance to do that. He didn't need that to accomplish the task that God had given to him. So what we can look at this story and see is that David had everything that he needed to do the task that God had given him, and so did Jesus. They needed different things, but ultimately they were both men that fulfilled God's purpose in their life. Jesus perfectly, David imperfectly. But ultimately, God gave them everything they needed to do what he sent them to earth to do. And you know what? He's given us everything that we need to do the same. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.